Noelle and Chris, thanks for taking some time to dive into the weeds on COVID-19 ed policy. I know that both of you can't wait to get going on this, so let's start things off with you, Noelle, um, about what has been the state-by-state -state response to the pandemic and where we stand generally on school closures. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sasha Podelsky, Advocacy Director for AASA, and you are listening to the PEP Talk podcast, a new way for AASA members to stay engaged with our policy and advocacy work. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at PEP Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as ed policy. All shows are available for download under the PEP Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at spadalski at aasa.org. Our latest episode, which you'll hear, is a special in-house COVID-19 podcast with Noelle Ellerson-Ng, AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy, and Chris Rogers, who is ASA's Policy Analyst. During this segment, we will be discussing the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to public schools. And specifically, listeners will hear an overview of the legislation coming out of Capitol Hill, what it means for superintendents, get an update on regulatory waivers available to school districts as it relates to ESSA and school nutrition, as well as hear what to expect in the next COVID-19 package. I am looking forward to this conversation with Noelle and Chris, and thank you for listening. Great first question, and it's really good to convene with the team on phone. We've all been working from home, and we're happy to come together to talk all things COVID with an advocacy update for the members and our state affiliates. So when we start with a question about state-by-state -state response, I would be remiss if I answered with anything other than a reference to the great map that was generated by our friends at Education Week. We've pushed this out multiple times, but Ed Week was actually out in front in tracking school closures before they went really widespread, and their map is actually the go-to resource and has even been used by the federal government in terms of tracking the scope of shutdowns. The Ed Week map that details coronavirus and school closures current as of May 4th, or at least that's the data I'm speaking to now, reports that there's more than 124,000 U.S. public and private schools that are currently closed, and this impacts more than 55 million students. When we want to look at how state policy is driving that, the Ed Week map also gets to that, and it indicates that 46 states four U.S. territories and the District of Columbia have ordered or recommended these school building closures for the remainder of the academic school year. And these policy mandates and recommendations impact 49.3 million public school students. This map is evolving. I anticipate it will start to pivot towards what we know about when and how schools will reopen in the fall. That's not where we are right now. Uh, we are continuing to track the numbers as it relates to current school year closures. And we're again at just over 49.3 million public school students in states where there's a policy or recommendation for closure. And that the broader question or conversation will shift to can or will schools be open during summer to do summer mediation? And will that be in person or online? And or if they aren't able to do that, we are 
also getting more and more traction as to whether or not schools will be able to open in the fall. But I'm going to stop right there and just keep the question focused on the state-by-state -state rollout and where we are to date. Great. And, and quickly, Noel, could you talk a little bit about ASA's views on the guidance that CDC has issued so far and whether or not we think that there'll be additional guidance uh, on schools that will be coming out or uh, on reopening schools uh, in the future? Great. Yeah, we'd be happy. I'd be happy to talk about that. Historically, AASA has relied on the CDC for a strong working partnership that we've had around myriad health crises. Uh, Sharon Adams-Taylor heads up our children's programs department. And in light of other health issues, uh, not just COVID, but also SARS and H1N1 and avian flu, we've done great work to partner with CDC to get clear, concise, direct and science-based information and guidance out to school districts. And we started out really strong with CDC again with this crisis, which was great. I will say there is a hesitation because the information came out and it was constantly updated and we saw this evolution of applying the guidance to public settings and they have a great landing page that is very navigable when it comes to getting to CDC and finding the page that's specific to schools and we could follow the progression where they went from saying class or groups should be limited to 250 or less and then it went down to 50 or less and then it went down to 10 or less. A growing tension though or an ongoing tension that we definitely struggled with was there are a lot of schools in the, this nation where enrollment in a building is more than 250. And then when it went down to 50, we had even more buildings that individually enroll more than 50 students. And then when it went down to 10, we know that the average elementary classroom size is oftentimes more than double that. And so we were really looking to the CDC for clear, concise, guidance and application, quite honestly. Our school system leaders are really great at making academic and instructional and professional development questions or decisions on questions related to their areas of expertise. They're not epidemiologists. They don't know the science behind disease spread. And so it's really important that CDC is the preeminent source of information related to disease control and guidance that should be applicable. While the information was relatively clear and concise, it wasn't necessarily immediately applicable because while the information was released, there was continually a carve out that, well, the decision to close schools is ultimately a local one. And in a time of crisis, when you have a raging pandemic that is spreading across the country very quickly, information is key. Information that's actionable is even better. And it's it slowly improved, but we continue to look to the CDC to be clear in the information that it puts out to ensure that it's applicable and something that school superintendents can look at, feel informed by, and be confident in any decision they make as a result of that information. Now, Great. in terms of what we're looking for coming out next, the second half of your question, we're all looking today. We all read the Washington Post article based on something the president said on Tuesday. He and his administration are prioritizing opening up the economy, which could include directives or suggestions, because hello, 10th Amendment, the president can't open and close schools, on how to open schools. And so we are anticipating guidance from the CDC 
the Centers for Disease Control, as well as FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which could be a clue on how the federal government or the Trump administration perceives a timeline or process by which the economy can be safely opened up. We will look at that guidance, but again, we will be looking for clear science-based guidance that can inform superintendent decisions on how to best open schools in a safe manner so as to continue to flatten the curve, slow the spread, and support student learning. That's great, Noel. Yeah, health and safety, top priority for every school leader out there right now. Um, but mm -hmm. I know our folks are probably really uh, interested in knowing what Congress is doing right now and what they've done already to provide some relief, some flexibility to school districts. And I thought it would be great to hear your take on the first, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act and then the CARES Act and what they did address in terms of education and perhaps where also they failed to act or fund things appropriately. Great. And I'm going to talk through a lot of information in this question. And what I will say is that Sasha's not riffing these questions off the top of her head. We plan these questions and our contact information will be available at the end of the podcast. So do, do reach out to us if you're not already a part of the AASA Advocacy Network to get that information. So when we look at the federal response to COVID, there have been three bills to date. The first one was just over $8 billion. That was the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act. $8 billion, which is a lot of funding, but very small pennies when we look at both the size of the third package as well as the size of the additional packages that are currently being negotiated. That first package was really just focused on with almost a laser-like focus on helping federal, state, and local health agencies address their capacity to prepare for and respond to COVID. That was signed into law on March 6th. Less than two weeks later, they signed into law the bill that Sasha referred to, which is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. This moved a more sizable amount of funding and provided funding direct to programs that indirectly impact education. So nothing specific to education, nothing dedicated solely to elementary and secondary education, but definitely supports and provisions that will impact schools, communities, and the students they serve. And we summarized those provisions in three basic buckets. There was a bunch of money in there related to nutrition provisions. So money for the WIC, the money, the supplemental nutrition program for women's infants and children, money for the food assistance program to help local food banks, uh, provision to help the Department of Agriculture with its flexibility and helping households access food, particularly households with children. Uh, this was the bill that gave the Secretary of Agriculture the authority to approve state waivers addressing school nutrition assistance with school closures. Uh, and we would be remiss if we didn't point out, and I like to say that when it comes to the federal agencies that have been able to be nimble and efficient and provide relief that is actually responsive and reasonable, the Department of Agriculture has far outshone other agencies. They are just a shining star in terms of providing immediate, effective, and very reasonable waiver flexibility to school districts and states to help them do the very real work of ensuring that in light of prolonged school closures, students do not go hungry. And it's been amazing to watch, and it's been great to see the federal government step up to the bat that way. And we look forward to being able to say the same thing about other agencies as well. After nutrition provisions, 
we followed some health provisions. Uh, the big focus with the health provisions in the Family First Coronavirus Response Act was that it provides free COVID testing to all Americans, which includes a clarification that Medicaid and CHIP, which cover over 45 million children between the two programs, will cover diagnostic uh, testing. And this bill also increases state FMAP for public health programs like Medicaid and CHIP for the duration of the emergency. These are critical supports and funding elements that will play out in states, but should help us both identify and control, ideally, the spread of COVID and to do the all-important work of flattening the curve. The third bucket in the Families First Coronavirus Response Act is the paid sick leave, the unemployment insurance, and the family and medical leave provisions. These are elements that are relevant to schools in their role as employers. And what these things look at are the tax credits, the tax breaks, the unemployment insurance, things like that that are available to school districts. So if I dig in a little bit more deeply, the Families First Act provides employees with the right to two weeks of fully paid leave. This applies to all public employees, which includes school districts. So you'll see a lot of language about how this only applies to employers with fewer than 500 employees. That limitation is really only for private sector non-public employers. So in terms of access to paid sick leave, that applies to public school districts. There's also a provision for up to two weeks of paid leave at two-thirds of the salary to take care of a family member, as well as clarification that employees have access to take up to 12 weeks of job-protected leave. Think along the lines of the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, where one of your employees could step away to take care of a family member in a prolonged measure and not have to fear their job no longer being there. This is also the bill that included $1 billion to meet increased need at the state level for unemployment insurance benefits. And we've seen over the last month were unemployment rates that we've not seen in almost a century. And the, the number and uptick just keeps growing. And so that $1 billion has really just been seen as a step in the right direction towards what will ultimately likely need to be additional investment. There are tax breaks in there for employers who give their employees mandatory paid leave. There are also some elements in the package that don't apply to public schools. We would flag this for you and only to say, know that we're handling this at the association level. So there was a negotiation back and forth between Congress and the White House as to how extensively public schools should be able to access tax credits. And the short answer is that right now, they're not equally available to both public schools and private schools. Public schools are not able to take advantage of some of these tax benefits while private schools are. When it comes to superintendent engagement, we would encourage you to instead spend your time on our bigger issues, which include a call to action around IDEA and special education flexibility, as well as a second tier priority of investment in E-rate for homework gaps. And leave it to us to do more of this negotiating behind the scenes around provision for tax credits. But we did want to mention it here to be sure that you just know things that are on the radar, on the horizon, and elements of the different packages. Moving from Family First to CARES Act, 
the CARES Act is the third and most recent. This one was signed into law on March 25th. This is the bill that includes all the funding that everyone's talked about that is specific to education. So there's money for SNAP in there, the program formerly known as Food Stamps. There's money for Head Start and Project Serve grants, and there's money for health departments to help provide guidance on cleaning and disinfecting schools. There's money for the Child Care Development Block Grants. There's also in there the $13.5 billion in stabilization fund money that can be used to provide K-12 schools support. Now, that those buckets are broad and are broken into both a governor priority fund, which is competitive to the state level, but then there's also $13.2 billion of that $13.5 that will flow directly to schools through the state. This is a great first step, but when you look at the fact that school districts have to address the combination of both the COVID pandemic and resulting shutdown with also the likely economic downturn where we anticipate decreases in state and local revenues of upwards to 15 to 20%, the federal response is starting to pivot from the immediate emergent response to a pandemic while also bracing for what might be something akin to a recession. And so that $13 billion in the stabilization fund really will go a good way towards helping to address a short-term shift to remote learning, which is where a lot of that funding will likely end up in related costs, but won't even come close to addressing what we know will be a funding shortfall at the state and local level because of the recession. I'll talk about that more later. But that $13.5 billion when it flows out has broad flexibility in how it can be used by you at the local level. The funding must be spent by September of 2021, and it should be available to you within two months of being signed into law. As a reminder, the bill was signed into law March 25th, so you should start seeing the money at the local level right around Memorial Day. You can use those funds for any activity authorized in major statutes, including the Every Student Succeeds Act, IDEA, and Perkins Career Tech. You can coordinate with public health departments to help prepare, prevent, and respond to COVID. You can address unique needs with special student populations, low-income students with disabilities, English learners. You can do professional development. You can provide mental health services. You can use it to help address the homework gap and provide education technology to get internet for kids who don't have it at home. There's broad flexibility here. So I'm going to stop there because that's an overview of the content. We might later get into some of the more politics of what's going on for Package 4, but I'm going to punt it back to Sasha right now. Cool. And Noelle, you touched on some of the child nutrition provisions, but I was hoping since Chris, Chris is our lead on child nutrition, if you could dig in a little bit to some of the other things that are really noteworthy about these bills and, and the flexibility they provide around uh, school meals and, and school breakfasts and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure thing. So to start off with the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, it essentially gives USDA broad authority to issue nationwide waivers that can, one, increase programmatic costs, two, allow districts to forgo meal pattern feeding requirements, three, permit non-congregate feeding sites, and four, temporarily waive reporting requirements associated with the federal school meals program. So in layman's terms, uh, this really is a law that gives USDA uh, the authority to use this power to give relief to districts uh, that are still serving students during the pandemic. So to kind of get into the weeds here, we have heard from USDA um, that they've issued about 12 nationwide waivers. 
uh, and they've been really responsive to all of our questions and concerns. So uh, just starting off with some waivers that we've seen come out of the agency. So we have the nationwide non-congregate feeding waiver. Uh, and essentially this allows districts to serve in non-group settings to support social distancing. Uh, we've seen the meal times waiver, which allows school districts to serve kids outside of traditional times to maximize flexibility for meal pick pickup. We've seen meal pattern waivers, which essentially gives uh, states and districts the flexibility uh, to waive certain nutritional provisions around the federal school meals programs. Uh, so for instance, because of this, school districts don't have to serve the same amount of red and green uh, vegetables that they normally would during a school year. Uh, we've also worked with the agency to develop a nationwide parent guardian meal pickup waiver. Uh, so th those parents that are presenting at sites to pick up meals for their children are able to do so, even if the ch child is not present. Also noteworthy for our members, uh, we've seen uh, USDA issue a pandemic electronic benefit transfer waiver. Uh, and this allows states to provide benefits similar to SNAP or food stamps. Uh, to children who normally receive free or reduced price lunch. Uh, some areas that we're still working with the agency on concerns the area eligibility waivers, uh, which essentially allow states to increase the availability of meal sites and serve students that don't normally qualify for free and reduced price lunch at the free rate. Uh, so thereby increasing the reimbursement rates to districts that are serving uh, students that normally don't qualify for the program. In contrast, the CARES Act uh, mainly provides funding for the aforementioned activities. Uh, so to expand on what Noel touched on earlier, uh, for instance, the bill allocates about $15.5 billion to the SNAP program for the Electronic Benefit Transfer Program, and about $8.8 .8 billion uh, for the Child Nutrition Programs to help ensure students receive meals when schools are not in session. That's great. And so if, uh, what I'm hearing you say is that USDA has been, has been pretty responsive, and I'd like to hear from Noelle later about what she thinks about how Ed has responded to some of the flexibilities that we've requested as well. But are there any issues uh, on the school nutrition side that are particularly salient for our school leaders in, in rural districts in particular that you're focused on seeing USDA address? Yeah, so we've been hearing from our members uh, that one of the issues for our rural superintendents is uh, delivering food services in hard-to-reach uh, locations or hard-to-reach areas. And moreover, uh, districts have annual costs associated with the program. And even though some LEAs are serving less students than during a normal school year, which in turn means less money flowing to districts, these expenses don't just disappear once a pandemic hits. Uh, moreover, since districts are still expected to deliver meals to food ins insecure students, coupled with the fact that we're going to see an increase in need due to the economic effects of the pandemic, uh, the question of how sustainable are these food service operations is becoming increasingly more salient for our members. Uh, so really what I'm trying to get at here is that our members are, are voicing concerns that they need more uh, money pass the free uh, reimbursement rate to sustain these programs in the long term as we're starting to hear that schools are going to open up possibly in 2021. Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and certainly I know we're, we're interested in making sure that 
the funding that uh, does go out the door through CARES can be used retroactively, since we know the districts are incurring a lot of costs related to food service right now, that they hope that they'll get at least partially uh, some money from the feds to fill those gaps for. Well, in terms of uh, ED and how flexible and responsive they've been, can you talk a little bit about what they've done so far around assessment and accountability and any fiscal flexibility that they've granted states and districts and also uh, anything on the horizon in terms of additional reports or things like that that they may be issuing to ask Congress for additional flexibility? Absolutely. And I made the comments earlier about how the Department of Agriculture has been particularly a great shining star. I think that's in part because they had the opportunity to act first. It is not the case that the Department of Ed has completely missed an opportunity to provide a waiver and not deliver it. Quite to the contrary, one of the earliest issues that arose in terms of a need for flexibility that was under the jurisdiction of the Department of Ed relates to assessment and accountability. And the the CARES Act includes a bunch of flexibility to states to get waivers. Um, and that's in addition to flexibility that had already been granted by the Department of Ed as it relates to assessments. So essentially any state that wants to apply for flexibility from specific provisions in assessments and accountability has a streamlined process by which they can use a standardized form and they merely have to go through and check off, literally from a checklist, the elements related to assessment and or accountability from which they are seeking flexibility. And the department is doing a great job to turn those around, I believe within 24 to 48 hours. So a state knows where they stand. And I can tell you without hesitation that both our state affiliates and our individual superintendents do report an element of relief because they know in the back of their head that's one last thing they need to keep in their minds right now because it's been addressed for the school year. And they can focus on some of the other remaining big priorities, which include the ongoing effort around school nutrition, which includes some other areas for regulatory relief that I'm about to touch on. Within the CARES Act, there were also flexibilities specific to state and local provisions for funding mandates within the Every Student Succeeds Act. So state ed agencies and or local education agencies in under ESSA can seek a waiver from the requirement for states to maintain their education spending in order to tap federal funds, so maintenance of effort. You can seek a waiver to make it easier to run school-wide Title I programs regardless of the share of low-income students in schools and districts. You can seek a waiver from the requirements governing Title IV Part A, which funds programs aimed at student well-being and well-rounded achievement. This is particularly relevant because this would waive the requirements on caps on spending for different priority areas. And one of the areas that had a cap in Title IV was related to education technology. So to the extent that your district would receive its CARES funding and wanted to put all of it towards remote learning and addressing the homework gap, you would need to make sure that your local or state ed agency has applied for and received the waiver so that you're not out of compliance with a cap on the 15% limit for under which Title IV money can flow to ed tech. Continuing the fiscal or finance related waivers that were granted in CARES for the ESSA law, you can pursue a waiver to carry over as much Title I money as you want, 
normally there's a 15% cash limit. This is particularly relevant because when you think about the, while there is a lot of costs being ex incurred right now to transition to remote learning, it's not necessarily all totally paid by Title I and your Title I funds do have very explicit strings and explicit allocations and explicit line items that they're assigned to. And to the extent that you have these budget line items that aren't realized because you shifted to remote learning instead of in school, you are likely facing a scenario where you will have a larger portion of your Title I dollars not actually spent. And school districts would quite readily and probably very quickly butt up against the current 15% cap on rollover. So know that if you anticipate not drawing down and spending the full extent of your Title I dollars, you can roll more over, but you, again, will need to ensure that you have the waiver to do so. There's also the last waiver we would flag under ESSA is the waiver related to the ESSA definition of professional development. We find these finance waivers to be, again, an amazingly reasonable approach to balancing the realities of responding to a crisis while holding state and local education agencies accountable to core provisions of Title I of ESSA, which is a premier federal flagship law. It's a great transition and excellent segue to something where I'm actually going to punt the conversation back to Sasha, because as we look at the next legislative package, yes, we're focused on additional funding for continued investment in education technology and funding to help stabilize the economies at the state and local level and funding for Title I and IDEA. We are also doing a full court press on the need for smart, reasonable, narrow, and time-limited flexibility from provisions in IDEA. It is a huge Sisyphean feat. Sasha's at the helm there, and this is another area where the Department of Ed can deliver. They had 30 days from when the CARES Act was signed for Secretary DeVos to make her recommendations to Congress, and Sasha's leading our charge there. So, Sasha, can you tell our listeners about everything we have going on related to IDEA, what our ask is, and how they can engage? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, just to back up, so as Noel mentioned, uh, when uh, the CARES Act was being drafted, uh, there was a discussion on the Hill about what flexibilities would be needed under ESSA, as well as with Perkins and the Higher Ed Act, and, and then IDEA being you know, the fourth most important bill uh, that we were focused on at, in, in the K-12 world was, was one that was also under discussion for how we can make sure that it's working reasonably in light of what's happening. And Unfortunately, uh, the way it was framed was that uh, Republicans in particular were interested in just waiving IDEA, like wholesale waiving of the law. You don't have to do anything. Um, at least that was how Democrats perceived of their, of their initial language and how disability rights advocates and civil rights advocates perceived of it. And so things really got off on the wrong foot because uh, no one was ever going to suggest that ASA would never have supported, you know, a blanket waiver of the entire law. You don't have to do anything related to IDEA during the pandemic. But that was kind of how we started off. And where we ended up with CARES was that the secretary, as Noel said, would put forward a report on what specific flexibilities would be necessary to, to around IDEA during the pandemic. So now that the ball is in DeVos's court, uh, we began to have conversations with the department about the kinds of flexibilities that we hoped she would ask Congress to include in the next COVID package. And from our perspective, the flexibilities that we, we were and currently are continuing to seek fall into three buckets, paperwork flexibilities. 
extensions on the multitude of timelines in IDEA, whether that's initial evaluation timelines, reevaluation timelines, timelines to respond to due process complaints, the list goes on and on. And as the other paperwork piece uh, was really focused on procedural notifications, uh, would districts really have to amend IEPs as prescribed under IDEA, or could we have some flexibility in terms of developing interim learning plans for students that we would share with parents, but that wouldn't require their direct sign-off? Uh, so th those are the two major issues in paperwork. Um, the second bucket is financial flexibilities. Uh, given that districts are utilizing their special education staff, particularly um, their one-to-one -one aides, in untraditional ways right now, we think there could be a major problem in meeting MOE. And making IDEA MOE more flexible has long been a top priority for AASA organizationally. And uh, this pandemic really highlights exactly why this flexibility is so critical, because districts would still have to maintain 100% effort. And for many, it's not realistic to do that, given how special education services are being delivered right now and how special education personnel are being deployed to meet other needs, particularly uh, food service needs. And we asked for a very clear and narrow waiver that would relieve districts of meeting MOE for this school year. The third and arguably most important bucket is around FAPE and due process. We know that initially uh, there was a lot of understanding and flexibility by parents uh, that understood uh, that district personnel couldn't be available in the same ways as their child's IEP dictated or who couldn't provide the same quality or quantity of services to their child. But as students begin to really regress in some cases and behavioral issues crop up and learning loss and frustration generally builds, we are seeing a real rise in the number of districts that are reporting due process complaints uh, or being threatened with due process complaints. And there's a real concern that in almost every district in the country, uh, there's a parent out there, at least one, with a legitimate reason to file due process because FAPE is not being met as outlined in their child's IEP. Uh, and that's no fault of the districts. It's just the reality of the situation that we're in. Uh, but we know that any dollar that goes towards fighting litigation is a dollar that comes out of the general fund, and those are in really short supply right now. Plus, the idea that large percentages of students with disabilities will seek to have compensatory services awarded to them by a hearing officer uh, could also really add serious financial strain for districts. Uh, because students with disabilities, of course, are not the only students who are going to experience regressions in learning, uh, but they are the only subpopulation of students that's entitled to very specific remediation under the law. Uh, and that could be, in the eyes of a hearing officer, uh, something like hour-by-hour -hour compensatory services. So this is something that we really need flexibility on. We need temporary, narrow, time-limited, uh, reasonable flexibility around IDEA uh, delivery uh, and requirements in light of this pandemic. And those are our asks to the Hill. And uh, we continue to make these asks despite the fact that the secretary has come back to Congress and said, thanks, but no thanks. Districts don't need any IDEA flexibility except when it comes to extending the timeline from Part C to Part B services. And her view on this is actually farther to the left than many Democratic members of Congress. I am not sure what DeVos gets by ignoring the counseling of school personnel who are actually implementing the law and who have, I think, really universally said that we need more flexibility, but I can't begin to understand a lot of the decisions she makes. 
So that's really where we are with IDEA as we wait for this next package to develop. And uh, if you want to join us in our call to action on IDEA flexibility, or you haven't reached out to your member of Congress yet to share with them the specifics of what you hope Congress does in the next package, we really encourage you to do so. Our blog and webpage has an easy portal you can use to directly email your member of Congress with some talking points. So please take advantage of that access. I know that we're throwing a lot of information to the listeners right now, but there's a lot going on. So if you really only take one thing away from this webinar episode or podcast episode from listening to Sasha, Chris, and I, it's that you should just email us with any question you have. If all you take away is Chris said something on school nutrition that I want to know more about, it's our job to get that to you. If you want to see the call to action on IDEA, our job to support you in that and we appreciate anything you could do to reach out to Capitol Hill. So we tried to decide if we wanted to break this into multiple podcasts or just do it all at once and we decided to just bite the bullet and push it all out as one at once and just know that we'll continue to update information both on the podcast, on the blog, on our tweets and in our newsletters. Now, I see we had one last question left and I did want to get to it and it includes some things to look for in terms of funding. And Sasha teed that up already and that as we look at the fourth package, that call to action around IDEA flexibility is a really big part of that. We're looking again in that next package to also secure significant funding. AASA helped shepherd a letter that was signed by 12 national organizations, including the unions and the Council of Great City Schools and the school boards and the principals groups and the school psychologists. And in it, we outlined our funding priorities. And our funding priorities in the next package are premised on the idea that it won't be the final package. There will probably need to be additional ones, but we need to get really serious about the actual needs of school districts at the local level. So we asked for $175 billion in K-12 funding to go along with the $13.2 billion in the Education Stabilization Fund. That needs to be money that goes right to the K-12 level, and it needs to be money that has strict maintenance of effort requirements around it that are actually enforced at the state level. Now, we're not saying that we don't want states to be able to cut their budgets because they have to balance their budgets to respond to an economic downturn. But what we absolutely saw during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the stimulus during the Great Recession, was that states cut so deep and disproportionately to education that federal education dollars didn't even provide relief. They didn't even, in many instances, provide a blip on the radar because states played a shell game. And while they did pass the federal dollars through to the local level with one hand, with the other hand, they were cutting their state budgets and investment in education by the same amount. They were using federal dollars to backstop state cuts. And that is completely unacceptable, inconsistent with the intent of the underlying statute, and undermines the integrity of the dollars. So we know states will need to balance their budgets, but the maintenance of effort language and the requirements that Congress passes both for the Education Stabilization Fund and anything they might put out in terms of money through Title I or IDEA must ensure that states comply with supplement not to plan and to the extent that they do need to make budget cuts to education or to their budget, which include education, education must maintain the same share of the overall budget. So if it was 
50% of a state's overall budget before, it must be at least 50% after the budget adjustments. We feel very strongly about this. We have no qualms about calling out what we know happened in ARA and lining up to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Uh, so that again, that maintenance of effort stuff would apply to the $175 billion we're asking for in the Education Stabilization Fund. We've also asked for $13 billion to flow through Title I, $12 billion to flow through IDEA. Again, in both of those, we want to see states held accountable for maintenance of effort and supplement not so plant. We've asked for an additional $2 billion for education technology with the clear caveat that it flows through the E-rate program. Congress missed the, they missed the mark uh, when it came to education technology in the CARES Act. Yes, they provided that we could use the money from the $13.2 billion for education technology, but dear Congress, bless your heart, if you want to provide funding for schools to help them address homework gap, you should move it through the only existing federal technology program that helps address connectivity in schools, the E-rate program. Anything other than that will water down the impact of the dollars, will open up the dollars to waste, fraud, and abuse in a way that we have protections in place and E-rate, and does nothing to actually ensure that the dollars end up addressing the homework gap. So our letter, again, includes a clear call for $2 billion at least to flow through E-rate to help school districts in their innovative ways to address homework gap, which could include things like Wi-Fi and hotspots and devices and handhelds. So looking at those as realistic options. We also include a provision that if any subsequent package includes infrastructure, that the infrastructure allocation includes funds dedicated to school infrastructure. The nation's public school is about as OG original gangster as it gets to public infrastructure. Our nation's school buildings are an average of 50 years old. And if you want to get serious about the long-term benefits that come from an infrastructure investment, the nation's schools are a great way to do that and to update those schools to better facilitate the types of learning that our students deserve and need to be ready to be engaged civic citizens and a productive member of the society and the economy in their future. So those are the big things we're looking at in COVID-4. Uh, Chris and Sasha, is there anything you would add from your portfolios that you're looking at down the road for future COVID responses? Uh, the only thing I would add is perhaps infrastructure, uh, the, the need for us to see some, some traction there, particularly if we're looking at the possibility that schools may be asked to extend the school year and do learning. I mean, we know that just basics like not having air conditioning in our schools is going to impact whether or not we can do those types of things. So the extent to which infrastructure gets wrapped up, at first it was it seemed like this next package would have a huge priority on infrastructure, and then that's been seemingly scaled back. But if there is any kind of push around infrastructure, we think it's essential that schools be front and center in getting infrastructure. And mm -hmm. we send on to a letter that would provide uh, $200 billion in funding for school districts to, to get uh, the money that they need to rebuild, uh, to get the connectivity they need in, inside their buildings. Um, as well as just to make sure that they're safe and healthy, welcoming places, not just for kids, but for the community, because that's some, certainly what schools are. And I'll also just add uh, for my portfolio, further down the line, we are looking for a way for districts to recruit some of those fixed costs associated with the federal school meals programs, uh, just so they don't have to uh, reallocate money for other critical funding services uh, to keep school nutrition staff on the payroll. Great. 
And the last thing that we wanted to flag as a team was just information that came out this way about how the pandemic is impacting Census 2020. AASA has been engaged with Census 2020 because the accuracy of that data and ensuring a robust count are as essential to resources as it gets. You cannot target federal resources or state resources or local resources to need unless you know where the need is. And the only way to know where your need is is to ensure that you count people where they are. And the census is a constitutional mandate to count people where they are, regardless of immigration status, because when you know where the people are, you know where the need is. So we've long advocated for robust representative participation in the census. And obviously a pandemic is disruptive to that, even though the 2020 census was and had started to roll out as the first one that was largely web-based, there is still going to be a field component. And just this week it was announced that the Census Bureau will be pursuing a 120-day extension, so essentially a four-month extension uh, to pass its deadline to both start the extensive field work and to submit its final data. So under a normal timeline, that final data would be due at the end of December, this calendar year, but again, the census has requested, the Bureau of the Census has requested from Congress a 120-day extension. From where we sit, we're very comfortable with the idea, and we've supported the idea that they need to buy more time and we need some supports for a more flexible rollout of the data collection process. We need to be mindful, though, at the same time that the data from the census is critical to elections and congressional districts that need to be redrawn. That said, we appreciate the leadership of the Census Bureau in requesting the time extension, we are optimistic that Congress will grant it and we will continue to monitor it. And that's what we have right now. We really just need to see in terms of how Congress acts and we'll have an update on that as soon as it's available. Sasha? No, that's great. Thanks, Noelle. Thanks. It's such an important thing to flag. Uh, and uh, if you're still with us, if you if you are going for punishment or staying through the whole way, thank you, um, Chris and Noelle. It was a pleasure catching up with both of you. Uh, for our listeners, thank you for joining us for another pep talk. Uh, and we have some previous pep talks that since you may be at home and interested in, in, uh, in education policy more than ever, might find interesting. So you can find that as well on our, our website. Um, and as always, feel free to follow us on Twitter. I'm at S. Podelsky, Noelle's at Noellerson, and Chris is at CXRogers16. So thanks for being with us. And as always, we're, we work for you. We're happy to do what we can to support you. Feel free to reach out anytime and stay safe and well.